Well, welcome to what is a re-recording of Sunday's sermon. I'm afraid we had a failure on the sound desk, which was entirely my fault for not following instructions clearly enough, which meant that we recorded over Sunday morning's sermon. So this is a re-recording. Um, I'm recording this on Tuesday morning uh, in my study here at church. 2 Samuel chapter 15. In our passage this morning, King David hits rock bottom. Absalom, his eldest son, turns on him betrays him and wrestles the kingdom out of his hands. So much so that the great King David, the conqueror of nations, the defeater of giants, is in our passage humbled. He ends our passage barefoot, weeping, climbing over a hill to escape his son. Now we're going to press into those details in a little bit, but before we do that, I want us to have a look at four simple steps that Absalom takes to defeat David. Okay, step one, look the part look the part that this is where the passage starts as absalom in verse one gets a chariot and horses and 50 probably slaves to run before him it is of course all a show it's a drama made to look impressive done so that everyone knows that absalom is someone important someone they should take notice of interesting aside that up to this point in the bible uh, horses and chariots have a bad reputation they're consistently used by bad kings, not by the leaders of God's people. So think you know, Pharaoh chasing after the Israelites towards the Red Sea. Now, the point of that is that uh, while Absalom might look impressive on his chariot to anyone in Jerusalem, if you're a, a careful reader of the Bible or a thoughtful resident of Jerusalem who knows your history, you're thinking, hmm, Absalom looks a bit like Pharaoh. And that's not such a good thing. Anyway, that's the first step. Look the part. Second step, be a man of the people. As we noticed last week, one of the king's jobs was to hear complex legal disputes and pass judgment on them, which meant that coming into Jerusalem was a steady trickle of harassed and troubled Israelites who had a lot on their minds. And verse two tells us that Absalom got up early in the morning to meet them, presumably before the morning sacrifice and definitely before the court opened to hear their cases. What's amazing about all this is uh, that for all the time that Absalom was at the gate, he never heard a single case that he disagreed with. Verse three tells us that his stock line was, your claims are good and right. Your claims are good and right. Problem, Absalom said, is not the weakness of your case, which is obviously very strong. The problem is the weakness of the king. The king is just a bit too slow to administer justice. It's a problem which, according to verse four, if Absalom were a judge, he would be able to sort out worth noticing isn't it that Absalom's not yet saying that he's asking to be king he doesn't want to overdo it just yet he just wants to be a judge that would solve the problem he says now to cement this man of the people appearance when people bowed down to him uh, he would instead grab them and pull them towards him for a hug and a kiss instead verse 6 summarizes all this by saying this thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment so Absalom stole or literally deceived or tricked the hearts of the men of Israel. That's step two, be a man of the people. Step three, be patient. Verse seven, I think, is remarkable. Absalom was clearly patient with his wicked plans. We had a hint at that in chapter 13 when he took two years to take revenge on Amnon. But now we learn that he kept this show up for four years, during which time he must have met hundreds and hundreds of Israelites and become famous among the tribes. You know, good-looking Absalom with his chariots and runners, always agreeing with you and always offering help, always bringing you in for a hug. Finally then, step four, be cunning. 
Absalom's request to go and worship at Hebron, Hebron is a, a little strange. I mean, he's been back in Jerusalem a long time by now. And even though he was born in Hebron, and I suppose it was plausible that he might return to his place of birth to fulfill a vow of worship, still it's, it's a little strange. Nevertheless, Absalom is cunning enough to dress it up in spiritual language so that David lets him go in peace in verse 9. But the real cunning, I think, is in verse 11. You know, Absalom had done a, a good job of winning the hearts of the people of Jerusalem. This four-year show at the gates of Jerusalem had, uh, had won people for him. Verse 10 shows you that he's confident that when he blows the trumpet, they'll support him as the new king. But the problem, if you think about it, is the people who have been in Jerusalem all along. The people who've been working as civil servants in David's palace court, because they know that this show that Absalom has been putting on is is based on a little less than the truth about David, his slowness to administer justice or his inability to let other people get involved. So what does Absalom do about that great company of people who would be on David's side? Well, verse 11 tells you that he invites 200 of them to go with him to Hebron, even though they don't know what's happening. He effectively rips the heart out of David's government and his ability to rule, as most of his team end up by default with Absalom against their will in Hebron. All of which is then helped by Ahithophel, David's most skillful advisor, who voluntarily, it seems, joins Absalom as well. Maybe because he's the grandfather of Bathsheba and, and not a big fan of David as a result. And we'll find out more about that in next week's passage. So there they are. Look the part. Be a man of the people, be patient and be cunning, all of which lead to the conclusion at the end of verse 12, which tells us the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. Now, if that's Absalom's four step plan to take over the kingdom, have a look at David's response. What does David do? Well, he runs. And there's an urgency about this. Flee, go quickly, says David in verse 14, taking everyone with him except for 10 concubines who are left not so much to defend David's kingdom as to preserve the house for Absalom. The narrative sort of slows down and focuses in a bit. Uh, firstly, in this conversation with uh, Ittai the Gittite, who has a brilliant name. He was part of David's foreign conscript army employed in his protection, but he's a new arrival and David, maybe to test his loyalty, suggests to him that he should stay with the new uh, king, is the word he uses. Ittai's answer is remarkable, though, saying in verse 21 that he's following David's Lord and David, serving him in life and death. It's an incredible statement of faith in David and in David's God. Next come the priests who brought the Ark of the Covenant with them from the tabernacle. But David sends those guys back. David's learned by now that the Ark is not a lucky charm and moving it can be very costly. And he's content instead to trust the Lord and leave it in Jerusalem. Now, you see in that narrative as well that David is making some plans. He sets up the sons of the priests as messengers to communicate what's happening in Jerusalem. Maybe the ancient equivalent of setting up a secure line or an encrypted WhatsApp message or something. He even sends his friend Hushai back to the palace to work with them. In fact, the way it's written, Hushai's arrival seems to be an answer to this prayer in verse 31 when David asks the Lord to frustrate the advice of Ahithophel. So David sends the old man back just in time, as verse 37 tells you he arrives just as Absalom is arriving in the city. Now, that's a quick overview of what's going on in the story, but let's slow down a little bit and focus in on David. I think there's something really remarkable going on here, which if we notice it will be a real blessing for us. Now, take another look at verse 30 and I'll try and explain what I mean. Let me read 
verse 32e. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and they went up, weeping as they went. This verse brings out the contrast in the passage. Absalom, great in power and arriving in the city. David in great weakness, walking out. Absalom in a chariot with 50 men running in front of him. David barefoot, weeping, head covered. Walking with a company of other weeping, head covered followers. Absalom's cunning deception, putting him in the seat of power. David handing everything over to the Lord, insisting that the ark remains in the city. Absalom deceiving 200 leaders into joining his coup. David receiving pledges of allegiance from outsiders and foreign. Now, those contrasts are all very well and they tell the story really clearly. But there's more to it than just that. You see, nearly 1500 years later, there's another betrayed king in Jerusalem, walking in those very same steps across the Kidron Valley, through the Garden of Gethsemane, up the Mount of Olives. This man, too, is marked by grief, weeping, shedding sweat drops of blood even. And the conspiracy against him would lead not just to exile, but to a death on the cross. And this, I think, is the whole point of this story. This is why it's in our Bibles, because King David is the most like Jesus as he ever is right here. In this passage, this is the best job that David ever does is of mirroring the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is he like when he does it? Well, it's when he's the most weak. In other words, King David, the great Old Testament shadow of the Lord Jesus Christ, shows us most clearly what Jesus is like, not when he wins the battle, but when he loses Jerusalem. Because, and I think this is the mind-bending truth of the passage, it's David's weakness, not his strength, which points us to Christ. It's his weakness, not his strength, which points us to Christ. How does that work? Well, here, David in his weakness is losing the kingdom. Absalom is taking over. It's going to take a savage battle to get it back. But as he loses the kingdom, David acts out Jesus's same walk out of the same city, up the same hill with the same emotion. But the difference for Jesus is what? Well, that in the midst of that betrayal and grief, in the barefoot weeping on the Mount of Olives, at the moments of great human weakness, Jesus is not losing his kingdom, but winning his kingdom. As on the cross, he dies for the sins of his people to gather them together as a kingdom of forgiven saints who will love and trust and worship Father, Son and Spirit for all eternity. Now, I think there are loads of implications of this for all of us, not least for how we understand strength and weakness. But I want, if I can, just to press in onto two applications. Firstly, a personal one and secondly, a corporate one. Firstly, personal. Uh, maybe you're listening this morning and you're really struggling, emotionally, spiritually or physically. You know, perhaps it's all that you can do to listen this morning because your mind is, is full, churning over what work might be like on Monday or what's going on at home or the trouble in the wider family. Perhaps you're full of grief. Everything feels hopeless and empty. What's the point? Well, listen, here's the glorious possibility of 2 Samuel 15. It's that when David was the weakest, he was the most like Christ. In other words, it's the point of his betrayal at the end of himself, weeping and walking, that he shares in the footsteps of Christ. 
And that means that for us, when we find ourselves there, it's not simply that the Lord Jesus knows how that feels, as wonderfully consoling as that is. Rather, it's at that point that we understand that God's strength is made perfect in human weakness. That empty of my own strength, I can rely fully on him. Let me give you a really silly illustration to try and make the point. Imagine for a moment that you're sat in your front room and you're watching a guy across the road try and undo a wheel nut with a spanner made of jelly. I mean, you watch him. What guy does the what hope does the guy have of getting that wheel nut undone? Of course, he has absolutely no hope at all, does he? Every time he tries to twist the nut, the jelly will bend and spill and the nut will just stay tightly fixed. It's an impossible task. But then as you're sitting watching, along comes somebody else. He takes that jelly spanner out of the hand of the frustrated mechanic. And he, he carefully puts it on the wheel nut and twists it round and takes it off. Now, I know the story is a bit crazy, but run with it for a moment. As you watch that uh, wheel nut come undone with the jelly spanner, what are you thinking? I mean, you're probably thinking you've entered a parallel universe, but what are you thinking? Surely at some level you're thinking, who is this person? What kind of person can take a jelly spanner and undo nuts with it? Now, in a roundabout way, that's exactly what's going on here. Yet faced with our own sin and brokenness, faced with the sin of others and the chaos of the world, faced with the suffering and betrayal pictured here, but then if we have an ounce of honesty, we'll realise that life in our own strength is like undoing wheel nuts with jelly spanners. It's a hopeless task. In the weakness of our humanity, we have no hope to face this world and our future. Sin, suffering and eventually death will defeat us all. But it's at that point, at that recognition of the hopelessness of our weakness, that we get to see the Lord Jesus who with our same human weakness, empty of all human strength, hanging naked on the cross, has in that moment the strength of God to undo the ravages of sin and death and Satan, bringing his people back to his eternal kingdom. Now, hear me rightly, because I'm not trying to glorify suffering as if it doesn't hurt or as if it doesn't matter. Of course it does. Rather, what I'm trying to help us see is that suffering is not a contradiction of the gospel. Instead, it's right at the heart of the gospel. So much so that when all other hopes have gone, when we've run out of resources ourselves, that is when we see who Christ is and what he has done. That it is in human weakness that we see the power of God at work. You may be listening to this, you're not a Christian and you're wondering what on earth this is all about. Well, this is it. Being a Christian is finding, like David, that when all other hope is gone, Christ is trustworthy. When you know that nothing that you have is so certain that it can last through the troubles of this life or the judgment to come, but you know that Christ has been there and conquered, so much so that Christ is all you need, that he alone is who you trust, well, then you've understood what being a Christian is. Being a Christian is not bolting Jesus onto your life like a hobby or a therapist, or believing a few facts about Jesus that you didn't believe before. Now, being a Christian or becoming a Christian is more like abandoning all hope in yourself and trusting in Christ alone. And if you're a Christian listening to this this morning, it is to the degree that you, like David, see and acknowledge your own weakness and hopelessness 
that you will enjoy the strength of Christ made perfect in weakness and delighted in by the humble. And the truth is, God loves to teach us that lesson, even though it's really difficult to learn. One final application before I finish though, a corporate application. Where do you look to see the work of God in the world? Where are you expecting to see this reality of God's rule and reign? Would you expect to see God at work in the in the corridors of power, bringing peace to Ukraine and Eastern Europe? You know, the Lord knows we've, we're praying on and on for that, aren't we? But I think 2 Samuel 15 suggests that you, you see the work of God more clearly in places other than that. Of course, it's not saying that God is not sovereign over the corridors of power, but in terms of seeing clearly what God is doing and where he's at work, 2 Samuel 15 suggests that you don't so much look in the corridors of power, but in the faithfulness of the weakness of his people. You know, you see God at work in the, in the faithfulness of a church pastor with his small congregation still in Kiev, teaching them the gospel, reminding them that Christ is with them, that eternity is not lost. You know, learning with them as they train in first aid and they, they administer it without fear or favour. Now, again, I'm not saying that either God is not at work in the big and dramatic or that we shouldn't ask him to be. Of course we do. There's good reason to pray for peace. We must do that. But here's the point. 2 Samuel 15 says that I see most clearly the work of God, not in the fanfare of the 50 runners and the handsome dude on the chariot. No, not at all. I see most clearly what God is like and what God is doing in the barefoot guy walking up the hill and weeping, singing Psalm 3 of salvation belonging to God. God's sake for us as a church. We long, don't we, that our church will be well known in our community. That people will hear good things about us and be pleased that we're here and want to come along and find out more about what it's all about. We pray that they might come and be impressed that church is not really what they thought it was and that Jesus holds answers to the questions that they're asking. We long for all of that. But where would they see it most clearly? Well, probably not in the impressiveness of our building or our music or our clothing. But most likely in the way that in our weakness... We have proven over and over and over again that Christ Jesus can be trusted, that he knows what he's doing and that salvation belongs to him alone. Well, let me pray as I close. Heavenly Father, how we thank you that the Lord Jesus in great human weakness, smashed through death, conquered sin, defeated the devil, rose victorious so that we might see your great strength in the midst of human weakness and even now in these moments and these days as we face our own weaknesses our own helplessness we pray that there we might find the trustworthiness of the lord jesus that we can rely on him alone that we might abandon all hope in ourselves and put all our hope in christ in his name we pray amen